Entering the kingdom like a little child, I wonder how often we think about that. We need to daily be reminded of that humble, just pure trusting attitude of a child that we often see that lowly meekness and sweetness of frame and disposition and just willingness to, uh, to trust. That's the greatest, one of the greatest pictures that we have as Christians of what it is that we are at, at the core. We are like little children to our Heavenly Father. We had a wonderful time this past weekend on our men's retreat, and I just want to thank those who were involved in uh, really organizing. There was, there was so many people involved in putting that together and organizing that, and also uh, I want to thank Trey and, and Jared. They both shared the word with us yesterday. We had three sessions, three uh, sermons, talks, and one was on Friday night, and then we had two on Saturday, one in the morning and one in the evening. And the focus was on the Word, and we were looking at flourishing, functioning, and fighting in the Word. So we looked at uh, three passages, actually various passages, and cross-references for those passages, just trying to understand how we can be men of the Word, and and, and really driving home the the fact that God has called us as men to be men of the Word, to be leaders in in our church, to be leaders in our families, and that we do that insofar as we are built up on the Word. And so it was such a blessing. I know uh, we broke out in, in smaller groups. And I know for me personally, it was, it was such a blessing to just be with the same guys three different times. To be able to talk about our, our sins and, and our need for the Lord. And talk about His grace in our lives up to this point, And our hope for future grace. And just to be able to do that throughout the weekend. So let me just encourage you, if you haven't come to those before, we had our first one last year, uh, first one in, recent, in the recent past, and then we had one this year. And so let me just encourage you uh, to come next year if, if you're able. So at this time, we're going to go ahead and uh, turn to Genesis chapter 23. We are continuing to march through the book of Genesis, or, or maybe in your mind, we are army crawling our way through Genesis. But either way, we find ourselves at this point in chapter 23. Genesis 23. Over the last two weeks, we've been looking at Abraham's climactic test in chapter 22. Chapter 22, one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, especially as we look in Genesis. This is a, a real high point of a lot of things. It's a high point where we get to see God's character. We get to see Abraham's faith. But it really is a climax in the Abrahamic narrative that we have been in since chapter 12. Just by way of review, we saw the command, the conduct, and the character. We see that God commands Abraham to sacrifice his promised son, Isaac. And then we see Abraham obeying God with full confidence, full confidence that the Lord will keep his promise. God was very clear, or he had been very clear with Abraham with regard to his promise. And what he said to him was, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. How, how much clearer can you be so that when God comes to Abraham at the beginning of chapter 22 and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac, your only son, your beloved son, I want you to take him and sacrifice him on a mountain I will show you. Set out and do that. Abraham had enfolded in his heart, folded up in his heart, deep at the core of his person, these words, 
Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And there wasn't a moment that went by as Abraham took that three-day journey to that mountain that he did not have those words seared into his heart. Those Those were really the tracks that he moved upon as he went to do this act in obedience to the Lord. And then God shows Abraham that it is a test. And he tells him to stop, not to do it. As Abraham is about to do it, he perseveres to the end. He's about to, to carry it through to the end. And God says to him, stop. Abraham, Abraham, do not touch the boy. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do nothing to him. And in that moment, the Lord affirms Abraham and confirms his promises with an oath. And it's interesting, as you go throughout the Bible, after Genesis 22, there is a, a, a constant looking back among God's people to the oath that the Lord made to Abraham at this particular juncture in his life. That, that God made an oath and he swore by himself because there's nothing higher to swear by. And I think that also tells us something about the uh, self-authenticating nature of Scripture. One of the things, this is really just a, purely a side note. But one of the things that you, you, may, you may think about as you think about apologetics and, and the Bible, we say, well, is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible credible? Should we trust the Bible? And there are many, many ways that we come to, to answer that question and many bits of evidence that we cite. And, and we praise God for various authors out there who've helped us see that the Bible is archaeologically reliable. Or it is text critically reliable, to historically reliable, that the Gospels uh, work together and that these apparent contradictions are really not contradictions at all. And that the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament. And all of the apologetic questions, even associated with, with evolution and, and faith and science, all of these apologetic questions are absolutely essential in every age. But what we have to remember is that at the end of the day, it is the self-authenticating word that cannot be propped up, if you will, by some higher authority. It's not as though the archaeologists really are the ones who are the authority and they help us believe our Bible. So if the archaeologists say we can believe our Bible, thumbs up to the Bible, we're going to believe it. Or the historians, the professional historians of first century Palestine or of, uh, of ancient Israel. If, if they can tell us that we should believe our Bible, then we should because that's really where the authority lies. No, it is the self-authenticating word itself. There is no higher authority than what God has said. And there's various books on this and one that I would point you to, it's... it's in some ways, it's, it's, it's hard. It's dense reading. It's good reading. It is clear. But John Piper's A Peculiar Glory, where he makes the case that the Bible gives testimony to its own authority and that people who don't even have this historical background can read the Bible and know for certain that it is truly from God. It is self-authenticating, self-attesting. And that's what we see with this divine oath that the Lord tells Abraham. He swears by his own name, by himself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. I will do this thing. So we got that last week. And then finally, at the end of chapter 22, we get that little genealogy where maybe you turned the off switch at that point because you've just 
grown tired of genealogies. We haven't had any in a while, but here we have this little genealogy which provides a pointer to Isaac's future wife, Rebecca. And one thing I just want to point out here is that as we go through the Bible, one of the things that I am particularly attentive to as a preacher, and one of the things that I think each of us should be attentive to just as a Bible reader, as a Christian, is always asking the question, what is this teaching us about the character of God? That's always a main question. We never grow tired of asking that question, and we never grow tired of the repetition of the answers. And so we're always asking, what is this telling us about the Lord? He's revealing. We call the Bible special revelation. Why? Because in it, God reveals himself to us. And what we have seen, even with this genealogy that we finished up with last week, is we see an orchestrating God. That here we are on the mountain, and the Lord has this massive test for Abraham. And Abraham is there and God is stopping him and God is affirming him and God is making these divine oaths to him. Meanwhile, the same God who upholds the world, who sustains all things, who preserves the smallest little microscopic creatures, is working back where Abraham came from. And there's a family growing there that will give rise to Rebekah, who will be Isaac's wife. This is the orchestrating God. So let me just ask you this question. Do you trust in this orchestrating God? Well, Walt prayed earlier that there's many needs represented right here this morning. Many needs. I and mean, we have various concerns, stresses, heartaches, sorrows, losses, and so forth. This very morning, this very moment. What we need to be constantly reminded of is that this God is on the move. He is working. He is involved in every facet of our lives. He is the orchestrating God. And even something like a genealogy can drive that point home. So chapter 22 really serves as a capstone confirmation of all that God has promised Abraham concerning his seed his future offspring. That is what is going on in chapter 22. If we understand it as a climax, we understand it as a climax with respect to the seed question that's been, we've been following through ever since chapter 12. But if you've been following this story since chapter 12, you know that there are two major components to God's promises. Remember, there are two. And they go together. One of them is the seed. And that kind of gets its climax in chapter 22, as I just said. But the other of those is the land. These two are always together. As God is dealing with Abraham in these chapters, it's always seed and land. And the promises of God to Abraham, the very basis of his faith, are wrapped up here in seed and land. When God called Abraham to leave his homeland and family in Mesopotamia, he told him that he was sending him to a land, a land that he would show him. And then when he gets there, God tells him, this is that land. And then he constantly reiterates that at one point, 
After Abraham gives Lot, or Abram at the time, gives Lot the choice of the land, and Lot leaves, his nephew leaves. And what does the Lord tell him? He says, look to your north, south, east, and west. This is all yours. So we know that the land is essential to God's promises. I want to take you back to the beginning. Before we move into our passage this morning, look, look back with me at Genesis 12. This is the beginning of our, of our journey with Father Abraham, the father of faith. By the way, it's so important. If, if as a Christian, one of the descriptors for you is that you are a child of Abraham, a, an offspring of Abraham, it, it does us well to go back and see what's going on with this man. I mean, we are his children, spiritually speaking. So look with me at the first seven verses of chapter 12. I want you to see the importance of the land and how it relates to the seed. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So then follow this. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. He's left everything he knows. He's left his homeland, left his family. Verse 5, And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, and here you go, this is it. This is where the two come together, the very beginning of the story. To your offspring, I will give this land. And Abram's response is to build an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So if the seed promise reaches its climax in chapter 22, and all of this is just setting up what we're going to do today. If the seed promise reaches its climax there, we could say that the land promise reaches its climax here in chapter 23. So 22, climax for the seed. 23, climax for the land. But we find this confirmation in a very unexpected way through the death and burial of Sarah. So the title for the sermon this morning is Sarah's Burial. And let me go ahead and get you to stand, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. Sarah's Burial. What we have here is a confirmation of the land promises. So Genesis 23, we'll read the whole chapter, verses 1 to 20. This is God's Word. It is perfect and it is profitable. Verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. 
None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron, this, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. You can go ahead and be seated. You may think this is probably not one of the more exciting passages you've come across uh, in the Bible, and that's one of the joys of expository preaching is we have to, we, we, we treat all of it, and you get to see the ways in which God's uh, showing us things from these unexpected places. Uh, we, we go to John 17, and we expect to see great things. We go to John 3, we expect to see great things. Or Romans 8, uh, or, or maybe Genesis 1, you know? These are obvious great things, places. But often passages like this, we say, okay, next please. But we see that often, well, always, there are things the Lord wants to show us. So let's pray and ask for his blessing and ask that he would show us himself through his word. Father, we are grateful for this time to gather. We are humbled by the privilege that we have to sit under your word. We thank you for it, Father. We know that it is streams of living water, that we are watered as a tree planted by those streams, and that we will bear fruit in season, that we will have leaves that do not wither, that in all that we do we will prosper insofar as we delight in your word and meditate on it day and night. Father, we recognize that in your word, rooted in your word, planted next to your word, we will not be like chaff that the wind drives away. Father, we thank you that you give us this assurance of stability and longevity as we drink deeply from sacred scripture. So we praise you, Father, this morning that we get to do this together. We know that throughout the week you call us to meditate deliberately and occasionally. 
on our own, privately, to cultivate a personal walk with you. Just as, as we see early on, even in the Bible here, Abraham was told to walk before you. And, and we saw with others before him that they walked with God. We know, Father, that we are to walk with you in private. In every facet of our lives, we are to meditate upon you. But what a joy it is to know, Father, that we do not live the Christian life on an island. We thank you that we belong to a family. And even this weekend with the men's ministry, Lord, how you reminded us of that. Last night especially as we gathered and and shared your goodness in our lives and prayed together as, as a group. And how we got to see the, the love that exists between Christian brothers. And Father, we are so thankful that we belong to this family. That we have you as our father. That we have Christ as our elder brother, as Hebrews says, who has gone before us, who has passed through the heavens. And we have each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And We pray, Father, that you would strengthen us together as a body. That this local church would thrive and flourish. That we would be a Psalm 1 church a Psalm 1 church that flourishes in your word and flourishes together as a body. We thank you for this time. Would you show us things from Genesis 23 that we never expected to see? In Jesus' name, amen. So one thing that is obvious from this text is that this text is all about burial. I mean, that really has to be the main idea here. It begins with this concern to bury Sarah. At the very beginning of the passage, Abraham is concerned about burying his dead, burying his wife, Sarah. And it ends at the end of the chapter with her burial. And then all in the middle, between everywhere we look, we get these repeated words, bury my dead, bury your dead. It's the the most prevalent word in the chapter. So we know that that is the the, the main point of this chapter, that's what it's describing, Sarah's burial. But what we find as we consider Sarah's burial is that this text is really about Abraham's connection to the land. That is the significance of all of this. As we see Sarah's death and we see her need to be buried, the text is wanting to point us to the God who has promised land to Abraham. And Abraham's connection to this particular land. So there are three things that I want to draw your attention to this morning. And you can see these in your bulletin. The first is death in the land. And then second, favor in the land. And finally, property in the land. So let's look first at death in the land. Look at verses 1 to 4 again. I want to read those again as we dive into them. Verses 1 to 4, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. For 62 years, it's incredible when you go back through and add it all up. For 62 years, Sarah has wandered through this promised land of Canaan with her husband, Abraham. They have had many adventures. They've had several setbacks for sure. But through everything, they have trusted in the Lord. 
And that's very clear. You, you can get the impression, and we know that they have these moments of independence and self-reliance, these moments of folly and feeble faith. We've seen that. We've talked about that with the two incidents of, of Abraham taking his wife and saying that she's his sister. And then they, the king of the land takes her into his harem, if you will. We've seen that. We've seen the Hagar incident where Sarah tries to come up with her own plan to give Abraham uh, offspring. And so she gives Abraham her maidservant as a means of producing children. So we've seen these setbacks. But the one thing that remains clear is that through all of this, both Abraham and Sarah have trusted in the Lord, the covenant-making God of promise. So I want to give you two passages in the New Testament that talk a little bit about Sarah and, and make very clear to us that Sarah trusted in the Lord. One of those is in Hebrews eleven eleven. It says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. So God was, was bringing about this conception even by means of her faith. She did trust God. We know she laughed and the Lord rebuked her for that. But she trusted God nonetheless. And so through that, she had power to conceive even when she was past the age. And then listen to what it says. Since she considered him faithful who had promised that Sarah believed in God. Sarah trusted in God's promises. And then we get 1 Peter 3, 5. In 1 Peter 3, uh, Peter holds up Sarah as a model wife and says, look at Sarah, wives, be like Sarah, is what Peter is saying there. She adorned herself with a gentle and quiet spirit. She was submissive to her own husband. And he refers to her as a holy woman. And here's the point I want to make, who hoped in God. So she trusted in the faithful God of promise, Hebrews 11, and she hoped in God, 1 Peter 3. And for 37 years, she had watched her son, this child of promise, she had watched her son Isaac grow into a man, her precious boy, 37 years old when she dies, the son of her barrenness, the son of human impossibility. Uh, Sarah is introduced to us in chapter 11 as someone who is barren. She cannot have children. And so what God does is he does not only give the barren woman a child, he gives the barren woman a child at the age of 90. This is a, only God, right? Only God can do this. And that's the point. With God, nothing is impossible. He says that at Abraham's tent. Isaac is very special to her, we would imagine, for all of these reasons. The son of human impossibility, of her barrenness, of God's faithfulness, the son of promise. And now at 127 years old, Sarah dies in the land of Canaan. And as we read here, Abraham mourns for her and then seeks a place for her burial. And there are three things that I want you to notice as we look just at these first four verses. Three things that I want you to notice or that should capture our attention, and that is the settledness, the hope, and the grief. The settledness, the hope, and the grief. So first, the settledness. For Abraham, there is no going back. This is so important, because you really don't know this as the reader until you get to this point in Abraham's journey. 
And he's called away from his family. He's called away from his homeland. God has called him to a land he's going to show him. And this is really the point in his life where he could have gone back. I mean, hasn't he just heard? And this is interesting. The, the, the last passage we read at the end of chapter 22, he's just heard of this expa- expanding extended family. Abraham has just learned that there's all these kinspeople back where he came from. I mean, now Sarah's died. Isn't this a great opportunity to take and bury his dead back in his homeland with his family there? Isn't that the very natural response? But that's not what Abraham does at all. For Abraham, when he set out, that was it. There was no going back. This is the perfect opportunity for him to do that. But instead, he trusts in God's promises. He doesn't return because his trust is in God. This is the land of promise. This is his home. His home is not where his family is from. His home is not where the, the people that the infrastructure and the stability and the people that he knew. It's, that's not his home. His home is where God has placed him. His home is what God has promised to him. So we see the settledness in all of this. We also see the hope. These verses show Abraham's hope in the face of death. Death cannot destroy the promises. By burying his family in the land, Abraham is confessing that the everlasting God will remain faithful to his promises and faithful to his relationships. We've already seen the role of resurrection in his thinking. You know, sometimes Uh, scholars will come along and talk about the development of these doctrines throughout the Bible. And it is the case that uh, an understanding of the Trinity, for example, does not develop until you get to the New Testament. A very clarified, crystallized understanding of the Trinity. Or the resurrection of the body uh, is something that develops, as we would understand, as the canon unfolds or as the people of God are moving through, as, as redemption is taking place. But as we read earlier, even Job had an understanding thousands of years ago at this time, the time of Abraham, that he had a concept of resurrection, that he would see God, worship God, know God in his flesh again. And we see that Abraham, as Hebrews explains, believed that even if he had to slaughter his own son, that God would what raise him up from the dead. And so even in the heart of Abraham at this early stage in the history of God's people, you have a sense of hope in the face of death through resurrection. And God has told him that he will be a God to him forever. Remember that, Genesis 17, 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And listen to what it says. To be God to you And to your offspring after you. There's this really interesting passage in the Gospels. Where Jesus is arguing. Well he's not really arguing. He's just basically correcting and rebuking. This group of religious leaders at the time called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees said that there was no future resurrection. And Jesus corrects them by saying. Well he corrects them by going back to the burning bush. And what God says to Moses. And this is what he This is what he says. He reminds them that at the burning bush, God said this to Moses. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of 
Jacob. And listen to what Jesus says explaining this passage. Jesus says, He is not God of the dead, but of the living. God is the God of Abraham right now. That Abraham lives now in God's presence. And that is why we see here this hope in the midst of death. We see here this burying his dead here in the land, anticipating this life everlasting with God. And if we are to sum up what is going on in this death and burial of Sarah, we have to go to Hebrews eleven thirteen. This is what it says there, explaining all of this. These all died in faith. Talking about the patriarchs. Isn't it great when we die having received the promises? We, we, God gives us these promises and we receive these promises and, and then we die. That's not the case with the early people of God, with these patriarchs. It says that they, they died in faith not having received the things promised. Abraham is still a sojourner. He's still a pilgrim. He's still an alien in the land. And now Sarah's dying. She's died. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In other words, this desire to bury his family, this is what I want to focus you on. This desire to bury his family in the land demonstrates that he has greeted God's promises from afar. And he is ready for him and his family to die in faith. They haven't received the promises yet, but he is dying in faith. He will die shortly in faith, and now Sarah is dying in faith. So we see the settledness, we see the hope. I want to lastly point you to the grief. Grief in death. What does this passage remind us of? It it really comes at us uh, from left field. I mean, we haven't encountered this in a long time as we've been going through Genesis. And that is simply the death of the righteous. This is not something that we have seen in a while. It is a reminder to us that not even the righteous can escape the fall. Yes, these are God's people. Sarah hopes in God. She believes that God is faithful. She trusts in the God of promise. But she dies. The righteous also die. And it brings us back to chapter 5. Remember that line that leads to Noah coming down from Seth? And you have that line of worship. You have that line of Enoch who walked with God and God took him. But in the midst of all of that, in that genealogy, one of the points that was so important to make when we went through that genealogy is this constant refrain, and he died, and he died. God told Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You will return to the dust of the earth. From the dust you, will t- you were taken, to dust you shall return. And that is what we see. We see it here, and we see it in our lives today. Death and sorrow are a part of this fallen world I think sometimes we forget this as Christians, don't we? And this is where the prosperity gospel, there's so many things wrong with the prosperity gospel. And uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but there's a video called Amer- uh, the American, An American Gospel or American Gospel. And I would encourage you to go watch that. It, it's it's a, basically a two-hour rebuke of the prosperity gospel. But one of the things that it gets wrong is the reality of sorrow and death in this broken, fallen world. 
that God does not promise us the absence of sorrow and death in this broken world. I was recently talking to a pastor who went through a season of just intense sorrow and, and, and just uh, uh, depression. And he said that it was during that time that he reflected on Charles Spurgeon. And if you know anything about Spurgeon, the famous 19th century preacher in London, that Spurgeon would often have these incredible bouts of depression where he just could not function. I mean, it's just his soul was so darkened with depression. And we know that some of us here experience that. Some of us here experience all kinds of things in our bodies, in our, in our minds, all kinds of trials and struggles and sorrows. And it's just a reminder that we still live in a fallen world. Nothing has changed in that respect. And when we forget this, what do we do? We complain against God because life's not comfortable. We grow frustrated. We grow disillusioned with the Christian life. God is not giving me all these comforts that I thought he had promised to me. He didn't promise those things to us. He did not promise us an easy life or a healthy life. He did not promise us these earthly comforts. He promised us, in fact, a life of suffering as we follow our suffering Savior. We're walking along this path of sorrows and death on our way to a deathless glory. And yet... Even though this is a part of life, we see here that death is something to grieve over. What does Abraham do in response to Sarah's death? He mourns, he grieves, and he, he recognizes that it ought not to be this way. And, you know, I've said this before, and, and I understand this concept of having a, a celebration service when someone passes away. And I totally get that, and I think that that's fine. Because what we're saying is we're, we're thanking the Lord. We're turning this, this death as Christians into an opportunity to thank the Lord for this life that this person has lived and that God has given this person to us and they've lived life. So it's a, it's a wonderful time to praise God and thank him for this life. But hear this. A funeral also is a time naturally as it ought to be, as it naturally should be, with a biblical worldview, a time of grieving. We ought to grieve. We ought to mourn. We ought to weep when people die. We see that here with Abraham. It ought not be that way. We should not be able to find on this earth a skeleton. It ought not be so. But we see here for the person of faith, this grieving is not prolonged, but is bathed in hope. We are those who can rise up from our dead. Notice Abraham here. He mourns over Sarah. He weeps over her. He grieves over this loss. And then what does it say? He rises up from his dead. And that means that he is able to move forward with his life. You know, I just want to venture to say, is this maybe an issue for you in your life? Maybe someone close to you has died and you just keep holding on in grief, in mourning. And you just are clutching on to that. Let me encourage you from what we see here from Abraham to, to really rise up from that as a Christian. Recognizing two things to be true. First, this is the way it is here on earth since Adam. And secondly, to recognize that for the Christian, there will be a day when all tears are wiped away. 
when all death is done away with, when all mourning flees from the face of God. So what does he rise up to do? To secure a burial place from the Hittites, the people of the land. That leads us to our second point, and that is favor in the land. So we see death in the land, and now we see favor in the land. Look at verses 5 to 16. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which, is, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. Now, this is a really interesting back and forth between these Folks, And it is difficult to know what is in the mind of these Hittites as they are interacting with Abraham. Uh, They're kind of a sketchy bunch. You know, we want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but, you know, you do kind of read between the lines and you can see the sketchiness here. Uh, We do know these are idol-worshipping pagans. These are people of the land. Uh, a group of Hittites, perhaps, who had come, uh, the Hittite empires further north, but a group of Hittites that have come down south into this land. And their desire to give the land to Abraham may be, of way, may be a way of keeping him dependent. So the fact that they want to give him the land may mean that, you know, if you give someone something, at least in, in this respect, you give someone something, years go by, and you say, well, I gave you that. I'm taking that back. That's mine. I gave it to you. I I loaned it to you. It's mine. So there's maybe here an underlying desire to keep this man dependent on them. Give it to you for now. And it's not clear whether or not the 400 shekels of silver would have been a fair price. It's a kind of questionable uh, element there. But regardless of these details, it is clear that Abraham has gained favor in the land. And we saw this before with this guy Abimelech. Remember... In chapter 21, we see this Philistine king who comes to Abraham and he says to him, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. So we see already, we already have this precedent of the people of the land, a different people. The Hittites are different from the Philistines. And here we have 
this group of people, the Philistines, where their very king comes out with his commander to this man, this tent-dwelling foreigner, and says to him, uh, we can see, Abraham, that God is with you. So, so make a covenant with us, make a treaty with us, make a pact with us, and show us kindness, and, and promise that your descendants will show our descendants kindness. It's incredible, really, when you consider that Abraham is just a, a nomadic foreigner. And this is exactly what we see here with the Hittites. Verse 6, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God or a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. So what we have here is favor in the land from these peoples. And this favor from those in the land is a direct result of God's favor. They recognize that Abraham is accompanied by a mighty divine power, one that they better not mess with. We see this with Nebuchadnezzar. You know, you read in Daniel and you're asking the question, is Nebuchadnezzar a Christian? You know, is Nebuchadnezzar a believer? You see him sort of bowing down before the God of heaven and, and you, you, you kind of get this sense that, okay, he recognizes God's power and he's become a worshiper of the true God. Probably not the way to go is to think that Nebuchadnezzar became a convert to the true God. But what he does notice is that the God of Daniel is a mighty force and that this is a God who is not to be trifled with. And therefore, his people are not people who are to be trifled with. And that's exactly what we have going on here with Abraham. And here's the interesting thing that I want you to see. What we are watching here, listen to this. What we are watching here is that although Abraham is doing the physical bowing, it is really the people of the land who are bowing to Abraham. This brings, I think, two things to view. As we go through, Abraham is bowing before the people of the land. This, shine, this sign of respect, this show of honor and respect. He's the one throughout this narrative literally bowing himself. And yet what we find is that these people are bowing to him, to his wishes, bowing to his authority in the land, bowing to the fact that they must Unite with him in some way or, or, or be friendly with him in some way because of God's hand on him. And this brings two things, I think, into view for us. First, from God's perspective, this foreigner is the true Lord of the land. It is not the Hittite king who is Lord of the land. It is not the Philistine king who is Lord of the land. It is Abraham and his descendant will be king over that land and over every other land. Remember that God promised Abraham that kings would come from him. And remember last week we saw how God told him that his, his descendant would possess the gate of his enemies. Clearly they're referring also to the land of Canaan because we know that this is the land God has promised him. So from God's perspective... The king of this land is Abraham. Though he lives in tents, though his wife has just died, though he too will soon die, he's the king of the land. And second, this pictures the role that Abraham will play in bringing the nations to God through his offspring. Notice here that the nations are, as it were, bowing to this man whose seed will save the nations. It is Abraham's seed who will bring people from every tribe 
tongue, nation, and people to worship God. It is Abraham's seed in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so here in this land of Canaan, we have this relationship between Abraham and these foreign peoples, these these Gentile nations who will come to know God through the seed. So even in a story like this, our eyes are brought to Christ. Even in a story like this, an unexpected place, we see that Abraham in the land, in relation to those who dwell in the land, points us to Christ, who himself will come as king, to whom every nation will bow, and in whom people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be blessed, will be saved. Even Christ rises up in the burial of Sarah. So this death in the land and favor in the land served to further tie Abraham to the land. And that brings us to our final point this morning, and that is property in the land. Look at verses 17 to 20 as we finish up this morning. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, was, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Aside from a single well, Abraham owns. Here we get Abraham's first major ownership in the land. This whole area with the field and the cave and the trees, all of this becomes Abraham's property, his possession in the land of promise. And there's two things to notice about it. First, it is purchased. And second, it is public. It is purchased. (coughs) Excuse me. It is not a gift. That can be rescinded, but it is actual property in the land. Now, for us, we may think this is kind of, okay, fine, kind of maybe insignificant or or maybe a a bit dry. But for Abraham, who has been told ever since the beginning, by the Lord, I will give you offspring and I will give you land and your offspring will dwell in the land. This is just a taste for Father Abraham of what God will give him throughout the land. So it's purchased. It's not given. It's purchased, but it's also public. In verse 18, it says, To Abraham, as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. This is really important detail because what it tells us is that when Abraham takes hold of this land, this property, it it has many witnesses. Everyone is there to see this Land belongs to Abraham. He purchased it. It is his possession. And as I said, this is just a taste of what is going to come. And it's interesting that each of the patriarch couples are buried in the land, in this cave, as an act of faith in the promises. When you get to the end of Genesis, Genesis 49 and 50, 
Jacob is taken back and put in this cave. And so by the end of Genesis, you have three couples in this cave. This is an incredible place. You have three couples in this cave. You have, you have Abraham and Sarah. You have Isaac and Rebekah. And you have Jacob and Leah. That's interesting because it is through Leah that there is Judah. And Judah is the, the child of Jacob who will lead to the Christ. And so you've got these three beginning point families, these three beginning point couples, all buried in this cave of hope, if you will, this cave of promise, this land of promise, this land of hope. But as we close this morning, what do we do with all of this? Ancient land, a little strip of land, 4,000 years ago with this man and his descendants. What do we What do we do with all of this? Well, there's a lot of discussion that we could have on the nature of the land promises throughout the Bible and how these land promises uh, relate to Israel as an ethnic people, the Jews as an ethnic people, and, and how these land promises that we see throughout Genesis relate to any kind of future for the Jewish people in Christ. And, and we could talk through those things. And there would be many disagreements among us. Because that gets very much into our eschatology. Our understanding of what happens at the end of time. But there's one thing that we know for certain. That we can take away this morning as Christians. From all of this land business. And that is what we read from the Lord Jesus in Matthew 5. 5. Jesus says of those who belong to him. Of those who are in his kingdom. He says blessed are the meek. Then he says this. For they shall inherit the earth. Whatever we are to make of Palestine. Whatever we are to make of the boundary markers of, of Israel. What we know for certain. Is that it is the people of God. The children of Abraham by faith. Who will inherit the entire cosmos will inherit everything. The entire world will be ours. Those who belong to Christ, the meek, will inherit the earth. Not those who go to grab land today, kings and conquerors. They all die. Alexander the Great, Caesar, Nebuchadnezzar, these great men of history are nothing but dust. But the people who now in meekness follow the suffering Savior, who is the King of glory, crowned with thorns at His death. We will reign with Him forever. We will inherit the land forever. The whole earth, as descendants of Abraham by faith, in life and death, we belong to Christ, and we will reign with Him upon the earth, We will dwell with him forever and we will dwell with him with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We will have many, 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 many millennia to get to know Abraham. We will have many millennia to ask him about his life and the graces of God to him. This is really just a taste of our understanding of him and God's workings through him. And in his life. But we will be with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob forever on a renewed earth where there will be no more sin, no more death, no more devil. 
we will reign with Christ forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how Christ comes rising from the pages of Scripture. Wherever we may look, we, we see his face. We thank you for the lion of the tribe of Judah. We thank you for the lamb whom you provided, the lamb who was slain. We thank you for the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. We thank you for he who is the ark, the one who is the, the very means of salvation, the one in whom we must be if we are to be saved from your judgment. We thank you for this Christ who is the substitutionary sacrifice and who is the king who will conquer his enemies, who will conquer sin and death and hell and the devil, who will throw him into the lake of fire. We thank you that you have brought us to Christ, that you have given us him as our savior. And we pray that we would love him in meekness and trust, that we would walk through this life as as those who truly believe, as Abraham did, that we will inherit the land, (laughs) that we do not have to grasp hold of the land now. We do not have to make this life everything. We do not have to hold on so tightly to what's in front of us now, for we will live forever in the land. Father, help us trust you. Help us hope in God and not in this world. In Christ's name, amen.